Hello. In our last episode in the series Revelation Revisited, we looked at the first part of the letter to the church at Thyatira, in which we saw a good church that was being undermined and ruined by cultic activity within the church. And we saw also the way in which the Lord Jesus was planning to deal with this problem. Well, now we're going to complete the study of the letter to Thyatira and look at the final few verses but I'll read the whole letter so that you can put it into context. So we're reading in Revelation chapter 2 from verse 18 to verse 29. The Lord Jesus writes, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, Write these things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depth of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast, what you have until I come, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel, as I also received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In our previous study, we covered the verses up to verse 23. And then we begin in verse 24 with our present study. And verse 24 reads, Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have until I come. So here, the Lord Jesus Christ turns to those who have not succumbed uh, to the teachings of Jezebel, uh, to this cultic activity within the church. They have not followed her teaching. They have resisted it, and they have continued to keep the works of Christ, that is to say, to continue with the doctrine and teaching and practices of the apostles. So here now we have a turning from those who have sinned in this particular way uh, to those who have not, who have avoided falling into that trap and the seducement of the false prophetess. To you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira. That may mean to the one who is the angel or messenger of the church, a human being who would read out and, and convey to the church apostolic teaching and letters and epistles received. To you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine. So the Lord now is turning to the faithful people, and he says, I will put on you no other burden. And uh, without any question, I think, the burden they have is the burden of having this cultic group within the church. That is, and was, and must be a, a huge burden. We considered the significance of that for churches today, and I won't repeat what I said last time. Therefore, he is going to give them immunity, if you like, from other potential burdens such as persecution, the attacks of the Roman state and of the Jewish synagogues upon their Christian profession and witness. And, and then in verse 25, he says, Hold fast what you have until I come. Hang on in there. Keep obeying my word. Keep practicing and teaching the doctrines of the apostles. Hold fast what you have until I come. 
And that uh, statement, until I come, uh, simply means for the rest of your life. And it does not signify necessarily that the church at Thyatira would still exist when Christ returns. As far as we know, it does not, in fact, exist. And then he turns to the believers again and makes some promises. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel as I also have received from my Father. So the first promise is that the one who overcomes, and remember that is every believer, we showed that in numerous cases in earlier studies, the overcomer is the true believer, and every true believer is, by definition, an overcomer or a conqueror in some translations. He's going to give to believers power over the nations. And then he quotes from Psalm 2, a promise that is made to Christ by the Father. He shall rule the nations with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. And then he adds, as I also have received from my Father. So this promise was given to Christ and refers to a time when Christ shall rule the world. I don't want to get into discussions of eschatology, but it seems to me that a literal millennium, as seems to me to be taught later in the book of Revelation, would be uh, uh, the perfect time for that promise to Christ to be fulfilled. But uh, whatever view you take on eschatology, what is being said here is that when Christ rules, believers will rule with him. That's the burden of this statement. And this is not uh, something found only in the book of Revelation. There are many scriptures in the New Testament that indicate that believers will have some rule and function at some future time when Christ is reigning upon earth, they will reign with him. I'm going to quote some scriptures from the New Testament. Uh, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28. Jesus is talking to his disciples. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, uh, 
judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Speaking to the apostles, of course, at that point. Uh, but then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2, in the context of Christians going to law uh, against fellow Christians, he makes this very revealing statement. Do you not know that the saints, that is the believers, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Back to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Well, of course, another reference to the millennium, and one doesn't necessarily accept that the thousand years is a literal period of time, but I think it's difficult to avoid the implication that there will be a time when Christ rules the earth, where believers will rule with him, and there will still be people who are unbelievers in the world and opponents of Christ who need to be ruled with a rod of iron and kept suppressed and under control. It's impossible, I think, to avoid the implication that there will be such a future time. And there's one Old Testament reference that uh, I'm very fond of because it says so much about the gospel and I believe refers to a similar period of time. Isaiah chapter 32, and beginning at the first verse. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. There's the king ruling, and those beneath him, princes, uh, will also rule. It goes on, of course, with these rather lovely words that refer to Christ. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. The eyes of those who see will not be dim, and the ears of those who hear will listen also the heart of the rash will understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. The foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. 
That quotation, by the way, goes on to speak of the existence at that time of the foolish person and of the miser. They will be there. They will be active. But they will be seen for what they are and called by their right name. So again, this is this is not heaven. This is not heaven. This is not a time when all evil will have passed away and the final judgment will be behind us. So this promise, this rather wonderful promise to all believers that they will reign with Christ is something I think we perhaps do not think about or even know about. But it's taught very clearly in the New Testament and I think in this passage from the Old Testament also. And it is something to be perceived as an enormous privilege, fantastic privilege. And it has practical implications because remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says because of this, because we shall rule the nations and judge the world and even judge angels, we ought to be prepared to make judgments within the context of the church ourselves. We do not need to go to non-believing tribunals and judges to get answers to our internal problems. Well, then there's a second, there's a second promise. The first promise is that they will rule the world. Believers will rule the world. The second promise is this. I will give him, the overcomer, the morning star. Now, this is perhaps an even more remarkable statement than the first of the promises. Because the morning star is Christ. I know that some people call Venus the morning star because it's the only uh, heavenly body that can still be seen once the daybreak has dawned because it's so bright. Uh, but there's no question in the book of Revelation what is meant by the morning star. Uh, we read in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel, my messenger, to testify to you these things in the churches. Is summing up, to some degree, the whole of the book of Revelation. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Well, now, what does that mean? How can Christ give us himself? Well, of course, he has given himself for us and to us in his atoning work upon the cross, that is, past tense. And in one sense, of course, the giving of Christ upon the cross 
in his redeeming work is still being given to us. It's, it's a, it has a continuous effect and benefit for the Christian. But I think the use of the future tense here, I will give him, the one who overcomes the morning star, is probably a reference to the fact that when Christ returns to this earth, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, in the opening verses, that we shall be like Christ. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Christ is not going to make us gods. Christ's uniqueness as a member of the triune God is not at stake here. But it does mean that in, in many ways we shall be like Christ. We shall be able to do what Paul tried to do during lifetime and urged us to do, to imitate Christ, to be like Christ, to do what Christ would do, to think as Christ would think. Well, that is something we we do as believers in this life, but we struggle to do it. But there will come a time when there will be no struggle. But we shall act, think, speak like Christ in what the Lord Jesus himself calls the restoration. That is a wonderful prospect, and, and John Wright says, well, it doesn't really appear, we're not really clear what blessings do await us, what we shall be. But we know one thing, that when Christ returns, we shall be like him. And these prospects, these future prospects, should give us great joy, great anticipation, and above all, should constrain us to give great glory to our God. The best is yet to be. And as Paul says elsewhere, the sufferings of this present life, this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us as we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal.